This is more of a religious episode. We don't do that very often, but we do get into religious topics now and again. And this is one I've been wanting to do since I first conceived of the show. I noticed that evolution is a really big flashpoint among a lot of Christians in America. But specifically, even many who do believe in evolution will balk at common ancestry, the idea that humans are related to apes or any other organism for that matter. There's a sense that humans need to be special in a particular way. They need to have been created supernaturally or else their connection with God is illusory. Or it can be a commitment to original sin in its classic Augustinian sense, where sin is quite literally passed down from Adam and Eve to their offspring through the act of sexual reproduction. If you believe that, then you need to have an Adam and Eve. And if you have humans coming from a population of maybe a minimum of 10,000, 200,000 years ago, where do you get Adam and Eve? It starts to get messy. And so for a lot of reasons, um, distinct reasons, people react strongly to this question. So it's a different kind of polarization, but I think there are lessons here for political polarization. And for those of us who do have Christian faith or any other kind of faith, there's a lot to be learned here for how we can apply the same kind of thinking within our religious communities. In fact, probably we could have gone further in terms of how to depolarize this issue within the church, much like we talk about all the time within political conversations. But there was so much to cover. It's a long conversation, and we just ran out of time. So maybe I'll have Adrian back and we can talk about that, maybe talk about another scientific question, or I'll do it with another guest. But for the time being, enjoy this conversation with Adrian about common ancestry. Okay, Adrian, I'm going to try and get this right because we you told me how to pronounce your last name. It's hard in American English, but it's Wyod. That's 100% correct. Thank okay. you for that. But if I don't put on like a British-Australian accent, it's <laughs> Wyard, which is kind of wrong. That's also close enough. It's yes. close enough, but yes. it's kind of you're wrong. Do, you're in the top 5% already. Okay. All right. I'll take that. So, Adrian... Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work, and why you are competent to speak on this matter? Ah, good. Yes, I'll sign up for competent. That's, that's, that's certainly something I aspire to do. Uh, yes, so I now have a long history in uh, the science and religion connection. And my interest started right at the beginning. I grew up in the UK, which is why I have this strange pronunciation for my last name. And uh, I grew up in a uh, very traditional conservative uh, Protestant church um, and uh, was uh, had a great time there, uh, uh, but always had a, a scientific aptitude. I was interested in the sciences, even though they didn't connect for me when I was a child, of course, they were, they were both there. Uh, I then got uh, enamored with the rise of computing. I was able to, uh, lucky enough to join Microsoft right when the PC industry was taking off. So I worked for them in the UK and got uh, whisked across to Redmond, Washington, down the road here to uh, take on a, a fabulous job. I was actually the program manager for Microsoft Word, Word 1.0, if you believe that, a long wow. time ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity, a, a fantastic time. 
And I enjoyed that for a long time. But I eventually realized there may be a world outside computing and began to... Re- you don't say. Yeah, yeah. I like, um, yeah, eventually you can't avoid it. And uh, I had been rather crafty in my academics to that point because I had left out... Uh, managed to avoid everything that wasn't computing related, and I began to realize I had missed out. So um, I decided to to leave uh, Microsoft and go back to school, as they say, over here at least. So, um, uh, and I enjoyed that immensely. I was ready to fill out all the liberal arts, to take English, to take sociology, to take biblical literature, theater even. And uh, that sort of culminated with me heading back to England uh, to get a master's degree in science and religion, a single subject, uh, which was a new course. Oh, yeah, like an interdisciplinary thing. Yeah, yeah. And that was actually at Oxford University. Uh, the opportunity um, to uh, work with a, uh, a fabulous chap called uh, John Hedley Brook, uh, who was at that time the new um, Andreas Idrius Professor of uh, Science and Religion at Oxford. And, uh, yeah, I'm still have very fond memories of that time. So I got uh, trained up in this uh, this connection, and it was a a fascinating time, and I have yet to lose interest in that subject. Yeah. Uh, Well, if you talk about science and add religion, you've almost got a straight line to every topic in the world, so hard to get too bored. Uh, And then... um, (laughs) Uh, so since then, um, actually even preceding this, I have been uh, dabbling in the field. Uh, I have uh, teamed up with a number of people, notably the uh, Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences in Berkeley, uh, which is one of the earliest and uh, most prolific centers working on the academic side of this. Yeah. And, uh, so the I, academic side of the combination of religion and science or the juxtaposition or the natural marriage or whatever. Exactly, yeah. So um, I uh, was on their board of directors for many years, and my role with them was to help take their work and put it online. So today I have a very large website. I set up a a non-profit foundation to uh, uh, sort of organize my endeavors in this field called Counterbalance, counterbalance counterbalance.org. And uh, there today you'll find a large body of information. You'll find over 200 hours of video, over 300,000 links, and a lot of that source material came from my collaborations with CTNS in Berkeley. Okay, and what is the stated goal of counterbalance.org? Um, with counterbalance, the goal is to increase the public understanding of science. Okay. So I'm really quite lightweight on the religion side. I would say that I think one of the more fruitful places to spend time, where I have spent time, is on uh, the places where the sciences connect to society society as a whole. Mm. And guess what? Religion plays a major part in so many of the societies in the world. So that's how it really connects there. So we're not uh, principally, for example, you wouldn't call us a ministry. My goal was to sort of find some little avenue where I could do something quite precise and not uh, repeat what other people were doing. So that's that's the angle I've chosen. Yeah. And and coming in from the science angle uh, hopefully opens some doors that might be closed to ostensibly um, sort of missional organizations. So we met 
many years ago when I had just moved to Seattle and was like filling in as a worship leader at the church that you were attending at the time called Union. But then we reconnected because we were both about two years ago at this conference called BioLogos, which is they're kind of a ministry, I guess. They're right. they're a group of of Christian scientists, not Christian science like the denomination. <laughs> yeah. They are scientists who are Christians of many denominations trying to sort of like actively speak to the faith community about what the evidence is in the in the sciences for questions that directly relate to the Bible. Is that a pretty good yeah, summary? Yeah, that seems about right. And so I went to this conference on, on a whim, loved it, and uh, we, we connected there, and then you gave me a ride home from the airport, and we got to talk <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, and so that's how we met. Now, this show tends to be about politics, but it doesn't always have to be. We had Julie Rogers on to talk about conflict between the homosexual community and the church. And so we're just going to do an episode kind of in that vein about science and the church, or at least science and, you know, people of religious faith. And specifically, we're going to talk about human origins, which is a, am I right to say that human origins is a subset of evolutionary theory? For sure. Yes. Okay. And uh, common ancestry, which is our granular topic, is the view that human beings share common genetic ancestors with other organisms. How far back does that go? The notion of common ancestry? Like, I mean, technically, it's all the way back to like single cell organisms, right? That's true. Yeah. Um, the, the, the term as, as used really just stems from the evolutionary concept in broad brushstrokes, which is that you don't need, even though today we see such great diversity between species and throughout history, we see things are not all the same, but underneath it all, there are some common threads and you can choose to cut uh, you know, so slice things and view things in different ways. You can choose to see the commonality. For example, we share genes, perfectly functional genes uh, you know, that make our bodies work uh, that are found in bananas uh, or yeast. And uh, so we share plenty with yeast. <laughs> so if you're un- wow. unhappy about being unique, un- not being unique, then, then there's a lot to be unhappy about. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable assessment to say that we're not yeast. Right. And uh, the uniqueness of, of humans compared to any other species is is undeniable, including in scientific terms. But but people do cling to one or the other and say that's where the hill I'll die on. Yeah. So that's why this becomes a polarizing issue. Right. Okay, so here's my little agenda for the conversation. We're going to just talk about where you're at with polarization, both political and religious polarization. And then we're going to talk about why this is a polarizing issue mm-hmm. in in faith communities. And then we're going to get into the science. We're going to okay. save the best for last. <laughs> so when we were talking on the phone, you had uh, mentioned that you felt like you were a little bit to blame for uh, just in your own you know, individual way for the increasing polarization. You said something to me like, I thought it was wise to sort of poke fun at, uh, you know, false views or whatever yeah. to my friends online. And, yeah. and now you're, you're coming to kind of doubt that strategy. Right. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. No, that was, um, that was a, a really helpful 
conversation we had, and I can't say that I've really come to the end of it yet. Uh, but well, obviously neither have I. <laughs> well, let's let's see if we can't make a few steps in that uh, yeah. conversation. My inclination now and for some time is to work strenuously against polarization. I mean, the name counterbalance that I chose. Yeah, you can tell that's cut from the same sort of cloth. But you were not thinking about political polarization at the time. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was a little bit of a shock to me to realize as we were talking, um, right when we talk, were talking, I realized that I had piled on. And it is true that the conversation we had was related to politics. But after our conversation, I realized... Um, and it, it does apply further. For example, uh, when I was, I grew up in a very conservative church and young earth creationist views were, came from the pulpit and we were encouraged to pass those on. Yeah, just, just in case some of you don't know what that means, young earth creationism is the idea that the language in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible is like scientifically and historically exact and accurate. So that leads people to the view that the earth is roughly six to 10,000 years old and um, Adam was created out of the dust miraculously as the first human and any signs that the earth or the universe are older than 10,000 years are either fabrications, they're bad science, or they are an illusion created by God for, to make us think that the earth is old for whatever reason he has for doing <laughs> yeah, that. Is yeah, that fair? Well, that's right. You do start to tie yourself in knots um, to defend that in scientific terms. But the you know, the origin of that view is straight out of the Protestant Reformation, the idea that, that plain interpretation of Scripture right. should be profitable. And if it says six days, then six days is probably where you should start as you interpret the Bible. Yeah, and maybe a nicer way of saying it is someone might trust the six days in Genesis more than they would trust whatever the current science says. Yes, yes, because if you have, uh, as as you know, many w- would have, and I, I certainly had the view at the time, even though it's become more nuanced than then, if, if you start off with a plain-speaking assessment of the authority of the Bible as fixed in time, and we know that the sciences are evolving, to use that word, um, then why not if you've got two sources, why not pick the eternal fixed one and, and, and call, it, call it good? Right. Uh, and so, yeah, so I was, uh, I was no, very young at the time, and I was happy to uh, polarize, to, to, to take the pamphlets uh, to my friends uh, who were no, not churchgoers and their, and their, their scientific um, parents. And it was, a, you know, it was an yeah, unhappy this time. this is England where there's not a whole lot of church-going people. Um, that's that's a fair that's a fair assessment. That was not my experience. You know, there are you know these generalizations okay. across nations are really hard to, sure, you know, to really um, make work in individual cases. And I, there were plenty of church going friends that I had, and so yeah. But the, as you say, there there it was not difficult to find people to give these pamphlets to, yeah. and I was uh, <laughs> humiliated, of course. Now yeah. now what happened then, uh, because I was approaching this from a polarized view, that was no uh, problem at all, because these poor people just didn't have 
saved eyeballs, right? Uh, they, right. they just they just couldn't see the truth because they were not from my uh, side of the fence. And so what I've realized is that the view I had adopted then is a bit analogous to the the political stance, which which a lot of people have now, which is that to say that the conversation, whatever the conversation is, is over, yeah, and it is time. To not give the other side any airtime, they need to be shown it, uh, it, the right. If you want the best thing to happen in the long run, you don't want to take any more time to debate this because the the answers are in. Yeah, and when you put it that way, so that was my view uh, back then. Now I have come to learn that it's not. The conversation is not over. Yeah. Um, but I certainly want listeners to understand that um, if they feel this is a, you know, if the blood pressure is rising and perhaps I've said some things already which have begun to, you know, I've raised red flags. Yeah. Um, I can empathize um, with that point of view. Uh, yeah. I certainly have spent many years uh, on either side of the fence, under the fence, on top of the fence, and, and distant from the fence. Um so the question, which is still very much open in my mind, is, is there a time for that polarization? And I have come to believe that for, you know, the near-term political future of the U.S., no, uh, that is most certainly not, uh, we're not there. But yeah. there are cases which bother me. For example, let's say the KKK were looking, they're in town, new chapter, uh, whatever, whatever the units of grouping are, and they wanted to uh, rent a classroom in your church for their meetings. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, pri- it's I think that you solve that by saying it's private property. But if they wanted to rent a classroom at the library or on some public... Right, yeah. yeah. That's now, interesting. Is, is, it, is that conversation over? Is it time... Do you want to spend the time to empathize with the motives that drive people to join the KKK? Um, that's a hard question. Well, there you go. I think yeah. that's, that's... And that's what I'm wrestling with now. And, and I think a lot of the people that uh, believe that the uh, issues surrounding human origins... Uh, uh, need to be polarized, like evolution needs to be stopped from being spread, yeah. uh, 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 and perhaps uh, intelligent design needs to be taught equally, uh, given equal time, this sort of thing. They they do so because they think the conversation is, is over. over. You yeah. could also say Richard Dawkins is on the other side saying yes. that certain conversations are over that are not over. That, that, that's, that's very helpful uh, because I think that is the reason he adopts this aggressive, polemical, sort of self-righteous mode. <laughs> and I, uh, I do like his writing very much. So, um, <laughs> But I, I think it would be interesting to know if he adopts that because he believes... He probably does believe the conversation is over. Oh, yeah, he believes the conversation is over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So everyone's guilty of it at some level. So this is interesting. So let's apply this to politics for a minute before we we move on to science and faith. So I was just kind of running through a few questions in my mind, and I thought, I really love that. um, That's new to me. I love that explanation or that description of polarization. The conversation is over, and so now the best thing to do is just exert will on the side of the— victors and the correct side yes so abortion uh, on either side you could say the conversation is over women get to choose on their own bodies or the conversation is over 
human life begins at conception. It's over. Mm -hmm. And neither of those are very helpful. And those contribute to just more combativeness. Um, And on that issue, maybe we need to be open to both of those questions. What are the rights of a fully formed woman? Do they supersede the rights of a potential human? And on the other side, when does life begin? Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, or I guess I should push back on pro-choice and say, um, is this really a choice about a woman's body? If it's a double murder to kill a pregnant woman who wants to keep her child, um, then should that child not be given legal status uh, to just to say, hey, the, the conversation's not over. That's right. Um, that's such a heavy topic, you know. Yeah, we're not uh, going to go into abortion. Let's. <laughs> but but I, I think yeah. it's a there there are better examples. Okay, I mean, let's the, hear con- one. the conversation, that particular conversation, I believe is so clearly not over. (laughs) It's not that there are, there are people of the, of the people who have a strong opinion on that topic. There are people who think the conversation is over. Yeah. I'm pushing back just against basically the far left and the far right. Okay. Who are saying there are people on either side of abortion. Some of whom are saying the conversation's over. Now it's just about blowing up abortion clinics or it's just about mobilizing protests or it's just about this because there's nothing left to discuss. Right. And then those of us in the middle are looking at going, Oh, but it'd sure be great if like we could work together and reduce abortions while the conversation is going on. And the reason we can't reduce abortions is because there's so much pressure from people on either side of the issue who believe the conversation is over. Uh-huh. Right. Or take, uh, you know, torture and, ter- I mean, yeah. torture is hard. Well, hang that- on, hang on. <laughs> Can we pull, let's pull in terrorism. That, okay. Terrorism. Yeah, let's do it. No, that's, that's, uh, that's also a, a topic that's just, it's hard to suddenly pull in too many issues all at once. But the, yeah. a, a definition of a terrorist, which I've, I've heard a long time ago is, who knows if this is the right one, but it's it's been inter- uh, of use to me, which is it's somebody who has decided that the the mechanisms, the you know, political structures by which to bring about the future they think is in, is right aren't in place. So you just choose yeah. you choose to give up and, and if, blow and, up the system and, basically. But, and blow up the system, whether that's figuratively or or yeah. well, often it is figuratively, yeah. and and so the conversation is over is essentially the logic. Yeah. Behind that, and so a fascinating. I'm I'm tempted to say the conversation is never over. Yeah, and and I think you could probably argue that quite convincingly if you happen to have somebody who's willing to listen to an argument. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that that's amazing. So I've been using this formulation a bit on this show, which is difficult questions never have simple answers, or you know, big questions never have small answers, and that's trying to get at something, which is like don't oversimplify things. This might even get at it better. I might uh, have to cop this from you, Adrian, of the conversation is not over. That's good, man. Well, it's it's good. Well, I'm, I'm happy you like it, but of course it's, it's <laughs> perhaps that conversation is is not over, right? Because there are some questions you can ask, and this is what the sciences are good at. The sciences are yeah. good at asking very, very concise, constrained questions that have answers. Yes. And uh, what is the speed of light? 
that conversation's over. Well, I, I didn't think it was over as a child because that's one of the arguments uh, for the young. Interesting. <laughs> the, okay. The yeah. speed of light used to be faster. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm happy to stick with the conversation, with the, saying the conversation is never over, but we can grade. Yeah. The degree to which conversations are still wildly open yeah. up for debate versus sort of, if not put to bed, then snoozing. Yeah. I mean, I would say probably you and we'd have to think about this a bit, but I think you could probably say in the realm of civil politics, the conversation is never over. Right. You will never That's answer the, one the, of the big political questions of the age completely. Right. Right. So this is great. Okay, we have done a better job than I even dreamed we could do at connecting this conversation about common ancestry and human origins to politics, but we've done it. We found a common, well, you have done it. You found a common thread of the conversation is still going on. We can't be dogmatic about one, you know, at least about certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, The more granular we can get scientifically, it sounds like you're saying, the more dogmatic we can be, but of course, the more granular we get, we're making much smaller claims. Yeah, that sounds right. Yes, yes. So let's talk about the polarization of this particular issue. Uh-huh. Um, and you could talk about evolution in general, but I'm really the, the interesting thing that I found is even when I talk to people who are Christians who believe in evolution, I do hit a really particular roadblock at common ancestry of humans. And I find that interesting. Um, I, I guess I understand it because we want to believe that there's something special about humans that aren't true about other organisms or that aren't true about trees or fish. But can you just speak a little bit about this polarization that occurs when we get to that topic? Yeah, I think the people are concerned about uh, the question of, of human identity because guess what? We're, we're humans. <laughs> right. And uh if you, even the most broad understanding of you know of Christian theology places humans in the story, yeah. <laughs> perhaps at the center of the story, and uh, you would hope that the sciences would offer some support for your theology, and by bringing that topic up, I think we begin to open up an avenue to to a lot of the motives behind here, which I, um, on reflecting on this, I've realized has really changed for me personally. Uh, as I, as I mentioned, I grew up with a sort of scientific aptitude, you know, and I was, a, I believed in what science and technology could do. And I, that hasn't waned at all, but it has become much more connected to my wider understanding of how the sciences fit into our understanding of the world. Mm. And I think I would say that when I was younger, I would join with, I think, a lot of people, including people who know nothing about science, who would would assess, would uh, summarize science as smart thinking. Like, if something is true, then the sciences are going to support that. Mm. Um, And if the sciences don't support that, then you've got to worry um, and we need to remember that this is a really a recent phenomenon. Where somebody would just say, well, if science backs you up, then you are smart. And if it, you go against it, then you're dumb and ignorant. Well, yes, I, I, even to say that it's true or false. Right. You know, uh, and so if you uh, have a, you know, a Christian 
theology that places humans at the center of the purpose of the cosmos. And you have a well, a rough and ready view of things. You know, you just walk up and you look at different species, then humans look unique. They look better, if you like. They have more cap- their capacities for yeah. for telling jokes and and annoying each other and the rest of it. But uh, that the the other animals don't have as much. But the uh, if the sciences say no, it turns out you are the same as yeast. Yeah. Or you hear someone say because you share some genes with yeast, you are the same as or nothing but yeast with some finessing on the end yeah then you worry and if you, you worry if you think that science is the arbiter of all smart thinking i see and i uh have you know my, my supervisor in oxford was a historian um which is a wonderful way of, of connecting science and religion especially in the West, uh, in, a, in a way which is non-combative. Like if you want to understand uh, you know, Western history of the last 200 years, you cannot exclude science and religion and the way they interplayed in, in society. So then speaking of the history of issues, where did the polarization start historically between religious communities and those who were putting forth common ancestry? like Darwin, for instance? Well, it's probably uh, helpful to remember that this is a recent phenomenon in the history of uh, Christian theology and specifically Christian apologetics. Which which, which is recent? Uh, well, uh, the common ancestry question. Okay, um, yeah. Because that really wasn't on the table until, you know, the last 170-plus years. Yeah, the descent of man, right, is when he really was lays it 1870 out. 1870-odd, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so the, but the suspicions of evolutionary accounts of some stripe were coming to the fore. You know, the fossil record was, was beginning to hint at that. But it, we, can, we may as well point to Darwin in 1859. Um, he didn't talk too much about uh, human origins, but it was pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, where <laughs> he was between going. the lines, yeah. yes. And, uh, yeah, so the, the uh, polarization uh, and the, the high blood pressure came really at that point. And there was something about the Victorians, who were his readers, of course, uh, who didn't like monkeys. They just mm. didn't like the idea that they had tails. I suppose I don't particularly want to be turned into a monkey now but uh yeah they would somehow hit a raw nerve and if you there there's a lot to be said about just the cultural uh you know the chance meeting of of science and culture well uh, and the chance meeting at a time when england yeah and other european countries were colonizing africa yeah and there's you know They're feeling very good about themselves and, yeah and there's and, a lot of like very racist like pseudoscience being done about the shape of yeah, African yeah. skulls versus European skulls. And I mean, that's kind of that same time period. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to, you know, not trying to turn this into a Black Lives Matter issue or whatever, <laughs> but there is, I mean, you you don't want to ignore the fact that these things are happening concurrently. All these things, yeah. I mean, science doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. It happens in history and culture and different cultures. And um, being at least aware about of that fact is is always interesting and often helpful. Yeah. I'm definitely uh, not saying young earth creationists are racists. <laughs> <laughs> well, in point of fact, they would they would point to racism as as a direct uh cause of evolutionary uh teaching. That's mm. that's one of the Yeah, uh, this is probably worth um taking some time to 
to delve into. Let's do it. Yeah, the well, not racism in particular. It's just that the the polarization is acute in uh, in a couple of respects. I mean, the uh, for, for the wider audience, you know, most Christians, you know, of, of any particular kind, and most religious people of any particular kind, uh, human status, human uniqueness is, is a point of concern, you know, but they, 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 it needs to be addressed. Yeah. And if you say the wrong answer for Christians, if you say we are monkeys, which of course we're not, uh, then, then the blood pressure rises. And that's, that's a whole conversation you can have. But there is this broader uh, polarizing issue, which is the, how the sciences do or do not support Christian conceptions of a ton of things. Um, and yeah. what happened, um, I'm going to widen the context momentarily, talk about um, the young earth creationists, the organizations like Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research. These are uh, current organizations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ken Ham is the you know, Australian chap who heads up Answers in Genesis. Um, and they are useful examples of organizations who have you know certainly the the best of intentions and they believe the conversation is over they believe that evolution the teaching of evolution causes the world's ills um mm. and and they this is drawing on the work of henry morris uh who was sort of the, the pivotal character who brought out out of flood theology into sort of uh, into the, the what we know as young earth creationism now but they but they do see um evolution as the cause of not only racism but abortion and uh euthanasia and uh hmm. pornography is in there too so so they um believe that the 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 ideas which stem from an evolutionary conception of history and the lack of human uniqueness are to blame for all of these ills and th- they're not hundred percent wrong. Yeah, uh, I mean, you think about social Darwinism had a role to play in Nazi ideology. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. instance. So there's 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 plenty of uh, margin for conversation there. Absolutely. Um, but they're equally wrong. I think I would say there's there's no yeah. reason to say they're not uh, as far wrong as they are because all of these things predate Darwin. So mm. we can't really blame them. Blame them all on on uh, on. Right. 1859, and the an, or, an area which we haven't spoken about, which which we really should do, is the status of scripture. Yeah, uh, because this is a uh, a core issue um, for many people, uh, and it drives them to one one pole or the other. Um, if you uh, believe that scripture was you no know, God breathed and inerrant and should be interpreted in, in a plain speaking manner, then the evolution has has just does not match up with that. Yeah. And the other angle, uh, which is of, of importance to people, and you can see why, is how this relates to claims of, of providence, of God's action in the world, of divine action. Um, if you are, uh, if the apologetic, if, if the, you know, the arguments that you have in mind that support your Christian faith um, include God making a difference tomorrow... Um, well, if you go to your physics, you know your child's physics department tomorrow, and say God will change things tomorrow, they will say that's interesting. Tell me, tell me how that works in terms of quantum yeah. mechanics or something. And if you can't answer that, you you won't get any more time from them. Uh, and so, if 
you can point to recent events in Earth history, like within the last ten thousand years, where God is is shown through the sciences to have done things. Yeah, that gives you warrant to expect. For your daily faith. For your daily faith and from healing from disease and from, mm. from any number of things. Yeah. And to the degree that uh, evidence and scientific evidence is not available for, for divine action, then that is, people do think that is corrosive of their faith. And yeah. so just to, to tie, tie these, uh, these things together. So we had in um, 1859, when The Origin of Species was published, we begin to corrode those perceived evidences for God's recent action in the world. And that's, that's a worry. But then again, if you were to remove all of those evidences, how bad is that? Because it wasn't as if those evidences were there as, with any kind of scientific weight 300 years prior. It was just... You know, so the, they the, too were recent arguments. Yeah, and, for and, God, for God's work, or whatever. But the but the the, uh, the 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 step you need to make is to place Darwin in the context of what preceded him, which was the strong scientific argument from design uh, through uh, uh, William Paley and the likes. So, so uh, since people are probably not all familiar with that, so you're talking about. Early pre-Darwinian arguments for God's existence based on like the watchmaker kind of the yeah. look how great the world is, look how complicated it is. Surely God must exist to have made a physical world so complex and whatever. That's right. Um, if you go back, you know, a thousand years, then the evidence for God's you know um, special providence in the world is. It's hard to maintain. I mean, you can point to things, but it's sort of hearsay. But if you go up to um, the early 1800s, late 1700s, when microscopy was was you know coming online, <laughs> to use modern parlance, and people were discovering the the miraculous, you know, yeah. small m, but the miraculous nature of of, of the structures in biology, this uh, created a sudden and unprecedented uptick in the confidence people had. Yeah. That God had acted overtly and precisely and in a watchmaker-like fashion in the world, and so uh, so the, the the fall, so to speak, uh, when Darwin came along was much more severe. And I think, yeah, if if that argument hadn't preceded Darwin, then it would be a different conversation today. Even I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And you could see why people lament; they want to go back to that uh, because wouldn't it be nice? If I you know put my full bore Christian hat on, if if my if part of my role is to, is to win people for Christ, wouldn't it be great if I could just give them some some a couple of scientific pamphlets and say, look, here's the evidence that that God is present in the world and does things, and if you and the, you know mm. and and just follow this little line of logic and join my church and we'll call you good, uh, that would get people in the door. Yeah, and I'm beginning to set up my current opinion which yeah. is yeah. honestly we're, we're better off now <laughs> better yeah. off without it by not doing that we have to d do the hard job okay well let's not skip ahead too okay. far <laughs> this month patrons of our patreon campaign will get to listen to a conversation i had with a small church group like a home church group 
about depolarization within the church and applying it to Christian life. It's about a 10-minute presentation I gave, plus about 50 minutes of question and answer and roundtable discussion between me and the members of this group in South Carolina. It went really well. It's interesting. And if you'd like to hear it, you got to sign up as a patron. It starts at $3 a month. You can go to patreon.com slash depolarize, or there's a button that says become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. Next month, it'll be something else, maybe a web chat, maybe another conversation I've had. Also, there is a conversation already up for patrons between myself and my friend Ryan Downs about the film I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin documentary that just came out. So if you feel like supporting the show, this is the best way to do it. Depolarizepodcast.com or patreon.com slash depolarize. So let's just move that discussion from the 1700s and the 1800s to today. How is that mini drama or how is that macro drama between the argument of design and then Darwin's argument? How does that play out as a mini drama today in like a community of faith where scientific questions are coming in and people are unsure? Um, Well, I think you have to empathize with the vast number of people who are A, invested in this topic um, they recognize that the questions orbiting around this are, are fundamental, are key. And the number of people who actually have the time to understand the biology. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I would certainly hesitate to even talk about it myself. I mean, because the, the evidences are, you know, uh, deep in technical molecular biology. You mean just you'd be hesitant because you're not a biologist? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and in some ways, I'm passing on arguments I've become convinced on authority, you know, and, hmm. and, and who's to say I've made a wise choice there? This gets into kind of the big epistemological question of our day of as, as everything gets more and more precise and more and more specialized, we really increasingly rely on knowledge gatekeepers like every human being does because... I can't possibly be an expert in the 50 areas of study that inform beliefs that I have. Right, right. And I think it would be, I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't put in a little bit of a cheerleader session for the sciences. Um, yeah, so how does this authority work? Now, why, why should I say, uh, I'll trust a Oxford biologist about the, you know, aggregation of data on yeah. some topic. Well, it, it's predominantly because of the, the Christian virtues you find in the sciences. You said, trying hmm. to sound provocative. Oh, here we go. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the general principles of peer review and the, you know, the method of doubt, which we, you know, we trace back principally to uh, Descartes, yeah. um, these are born of a pretty pessimistic view of human nature. Which is, mm. you know, fully consistent with a, with a fallen uh, conception. Yeah. yeah. So I think if you trust the sciences in their uh, sort of the cartoon fashion in the in the caricature fashion, I have I have great confidence in that. So, for example, if you were to not go to your local scientist, but uh, go to go to edited volumes, you know, things which have been established for many years and have survived peer review, 
I mean, if people don't know, this is if, if you have a, if you want to tear down evolution, let's say, let's say you have evidence that uh, that common ancestry is false. The way the broad, you know, scientific academies around the world are set up, uh, they will uh, celebrate the first person to tear down that edifice, and somebody will win a Nobel Prize, and somebody will yeah. uh, gain, you know, notoriety and tenure. Now, science is is simultaneously rife with politics and infighting, and you know, and all kinds of yeah. terrible, corrupted, fallen uh, things, but. Over the long run, it's set up to wash those things out. There's a kind of a Christian humility in yeah. the way that science is run in general. It is, yeah, and um, and we should say other academic pursuits, ph- philosophy journals, yes. are the same way. I, if I am a philosopher and I write a paper, I send it out to ten people who agree or disagree with me, or both, and they kind of send me notes and tell me what I'm doing wrong. And, yeah. you know, it, that's, it's the same thing in, in the sciences. And that's right. That's right. Yes, I shouldn't have limited to the science. Just the, just the, the academic structures in general, um, uh, as fallible and flawed as they are, and there, there are some wonderful examples of how they can be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can be uh, gotten around. But uh, if you take the, you know, if you sum over, over a history, over a long period of time, then the wackos don't survive. Um, and even if it's a wacko idea, like evolution is, then if it persists, then as time goes on, you can put more faith in the authorities that uh, continue to say that. Sadly, we'd like a perhaps a, a better answer, but that's that's yeah. the best we got. Well, no, I mean, and this is something that I talk about a lot on the upcoming Reconstruct podcast, which is not out yet, um, about theology where with my co-host John, um, but you really get to this level, like levels of confidence hmm. in, in theories or in claims. And what you're kind of saying is scientific confidence is always proportional. So the amount of time since a particular theory has been advanced, the amount of people who have attempted to disprove it and failed, uh, the amount of corroboration from other maybe scientific fields that might relate to its claims, the things you would expect to find if a claim were true, the you know the more things you find. So an example of that is you know we recently found gravity waves, which was like the last mm-hmm. thing that Einstein had predicted with his one of his relativity it was a special relativity. I don't know. One of his general, I think, general relativity. Yeah. So gravity waves were the last thing that he said. We don't have the right. We can't find these yet because we don't have the the systems for it in place. And then we found them, and it's like so. That's an even further confirmation. But it's always just proportion. It's always just a percentage more. That's you right. never get to a hundred. That's right. And what I think that this causes problems for in a lot of Christian minds is. But I have 100% knowledge in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's false. <laughs> I, and, and that's maybe where the conversation would need to go with someone of faith is, do you? Because there are actually all these different interpretations of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so you also have proportional knowledge or some percentage of confidence you know, in a particular theological claim. Yeah, I, th- I think you really want to spend some time teasing apart a very simple little word called faith there. Uh, yeah. It is, well, it's a deep, deep topic. Um, it is true that people have, like, I have faith in the scientific method. <laughs> so just, right. And just, this, the, just the academy, uh, and the academic process in general. Um, but 
there are times in human discourse when it is only sensible to claim, like, totalizing things. Like, if you're going to marry someone, uh, then it's not like a percentage thing. Like, you've 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 got to like you got above fifty, so you're about to commit. Right? There's yeah. There there it is human nature to uh, to uh, live in a world where we, we pass a it's like a phase change to use a scientific term or a step function where you you go okay I've uh, I'm going to end the conversation <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah a little bit well um, marriage yeah marriage is like that I mean I yeah, the, re- yeah. the reason I decided finally to propose to my wife was I cannot imagine living my, I cannot imagine living my life without her and yet you probably could I, I could have done it right but that was sort of the thing for me to like when but, I get to this point. That's when I can commit. And then once I do commit, that conversation's over. It's no longer an open question of if there might be someone better for me. Right. S- you know, save uh, some sort of like a total change of personality through a stroke <laughs> or, you know, something that fundamentally, you but know, changes we, we, we the foundations. This, yeah. But this is now an unsavory conversation. And we, we you know, because it's better to conceive of marriage as this in this in these totalizing ways, yes. right? And we all we all benefit from yeah. the, making these sort of commitments. In fact, the structure of society maybe only works with these totalizing commitments. Mm-hmm. Commitment to country, uh, you know, military and, service people need to be fully committed to the military. And let's tie it around. So, commitment to human uniqueness. Hmm. Uh, I have. Yeah. No doubt that that is something which is in some ways defensible by the sciences, but is predominantly it's a cultural choice that we make. In fact, commitment to human uniqueness, or as I like to say, humans are infinitely valuable in my parlance, is that's fair enough. Yeah, is a foundational claim that I believe it's one of like the three things I believe most clearly about the universe. Sure, and it's a totalizing kind of a claim. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I do have to take it a little bit on faith. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we could even talk about politics with what we're, we're saying here, this sort of proportional percentage confidence, you know. Before we do that, okay. can I, can I yeah. take a little tangent into uh, a related field? So I was, I was talking up the virtues of, of the academic structures that we have in place and how they are set up to weed out the wackos. Now, if I were to go speak to an, <laughs> a very large number of scientists and ask them about intelligent design or ask them about uh, creation science that you know places the uh, history of the world within 10,000 years and the speed of light is not a constant. And to be they clear, would, intelligent design is not young earth creationism, but yeah. it is the idea that there's no way to get to where we are now without the supernatural however you wanted to find yeah. that intervention of god that's right okay that yeah that's that's a i believe that's a that's a very good though, way of getting at it well, because you. it shows how different that is from young earth creationism because a central commitment of of young earth creationism is the age age of the earth yes and the and which comes from scripture right uh so it is true that i could find any number of you know science people who would say those guys are wackos and i'm going to in, and I'm going to jump in and say no. I'm going to jump in and say that there are plenty of ways of understanding the motives of the people which drive hmm. and continue to drive, that started and continue to drive these various movements because they, they propose interesting and valid research programs. Even 
I could say scientific research programs. The um, the intelligent design one is one which I have a great deal of time for uh, at a philosophical level. Yeah. I, I think they're, they're touching on some really interesting questions. Now, uh, what goes on on day to day, as far as I can see, is much more political and I have less time for that. Um, but the, the proposal of the early creation, what we now call young earth creation scientists, was a perfectly interesting uh, suggestion, especially if it happened soon after Darwin. We have to remember that the evidence for his ideas, broadly speaking, have been uh, uh, accumulating every decade since. Yes. And they were by no means certain right when he published. Right. In point of fact, he didn't think he was ready to publish. He was actually forced into publishing huh. because he thought, you know, competitive ideas were going to get out there and he wanted to be, you know, have his name <laughs> on the idea. But the, I didn't know that. Yeah, because, you know, his his evidence was an accumulation. There was no knockdown proof. And yeah. he, he knew that. But let's say if you're a Christian, uh, you know, a, a staunch Protestant and, you know, some of us uh, enjoy that world. The uh, yeah. the uh, in in the eighteen eighties, you may say I'm have such a commitment, and I'm, my life is enriched by a strong commitment to the plain reading of Scripture. Yeah. So I believe if I go looking for evidence for a young for a you know a young Earth, I will find it. And why not? Why not go you know looking for, for example. Um, well, not to get too complicated, the speed of light one is an interesting one. How, in order for the physics to add up, the speed of light has to have been faster in the past. So this is a very this is, straightforward. If you believe in a younger universe yeah, or younger yeah. Earth, yeah. It, very simply, if if you if we see objects which are further than ten thousand year, light right. years away, yeah. which we do, then the light doesn't has not had time to reach us. Therefore, you either doubt your age or your only other choice is to say the speed of light used to be faster. And so they said, well, we know for a fact that the scripture is correct hmm. and the plain speaking interpretation is correct. Therefore, the speed of light used to be faster. So you could now go and uh, hopefully <laughs> find that the speed of light used to be faster and that would be science working wonderfully. Yeah. Uh, That's an interesting question. Is the speed of light fixed? Fair question. It is a fair question. Yeah. And so now, so this is where it takes a dark turn, uh, which caused me personal embarrassment, because I was told <laughs> that they that it had been shown to be faster in the past. Mm. And in point of fact, that was, that's a fabrication. It was, they mm. were, they were cherry picking uh, from wild error bars in, in the recent past. And so that I, I, passed on a falsehood and that mm. was I'm still scarred by that experience but yeah. um, in modern days the intelligent design argument says that there are structures that we could conceivably see and they say they do see them in molecular biology that uh, have the fingerprints of intelligence. Yeah, this is like Michael Behe's claim about the irreducible complexity of exactly. cells and yeah. eyeballs and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And um, now Logically, it is quite possible for them to have found that and, and in, a, in a convincing manner, and they have not. But right. but but it is possible. So that's an ongoing research program. Yeah. We could still one day perhaps find it if we look in some other yeah. section of the genome or something. But we might find, you know, ASCII encoded copyright god, you know, six thousand years BC or something <laughs> like that. Well, no, but but there's something there's something applicable here to to politics, which is the idea that. You know, we should not be so quick to dismiss those who disagree with us. 
rather than a dogmatic dismissal of someone who holds a different view, say, hey, run with it. See what you find. Mm -hmm. Do some research. I believe this, not because I'm certain, but I believe what I believe. I believe it's proportional to the evidence I've seen. I believe it some percentage. I could be wrong. Hey, maybe you're right. You know, maybe it is true, Marx and Lenin, that Mm. all of the machinery of resources, capital, and whatever should be freely given out proportionally to the masses. I think we can pretty much conclude today that that didn't work out. (laughs) But in theory, maybe they would have been right. And Adam Smith's free hand of the market was wrong. I would say the ball's pretty much in the court of Adam Smith now. But we've also learned that capitalism can't be unregulated because right. if it is, it leads to the industrial revolution. It leads to shirt, you know, the, the shirt waist coat fire or whatever, the triangle fire in, in uh, New York. What was that one called? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Where all I those like, hundreds of workers just burnt to a crisp in this building because oh. there were no fire exits because to keep the girls from stealing, they all had to go in and out through one exit and like basically be checked. Uh-huh. And that led to hundreds of deaths. And that kind of sparked the modern day labor uh, movement. But I, and I think you can't, and sad to say, um, you can't finish that conversation without bringing up fake news. Oh, uh, if, if people are going to be receptive to the idea that they needed to go research, that the conversation is not over, they thought it was, but they needed to go double check yeah. something. And if you believe that there is just no hope for double-checking anything, mm-hmm. I think we're, we're lost at this point. Yeah, right? I think it's over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then language is just a weapon, and knowledge, there is no knowledge. Everything <laughs> is just will to power, and it is, this is my perspective, and I will wield language as a weapon until I get my way. And if I get my way, then now then you will know that I was right. That I was right, yeah. 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 Oh, man, we could have a whole conversation about that and now I really want to but let's let's make sure we get to this actual evidence here for people oh, sure, who are sure. interested but we have succeeded Adrian we have succeeded in tying this question to politics we have I feel very confident that we've Nicely done that done. teamwork so just again what is common ancestry just give us like a like the way that you would define it yeah yeah common ancestry um, so you know if you have uh, siblings you have a parent you have parents, hopefully. Yep. <laughs> and if you have uh, nieces and cousins, then you share ancestors a bit further back in your family tree. Um, and common ancestry says that uh, if you go back a thousand years, you'll you'll find common ancestors that probably look a little different. They probably yeah. came from a different part of the world, and and that that is a that's a cycle you can keep on doing. Yeah. And eventually, you you do it, and you you actually uh, have ancestors which are which predate modern humans. Yeah, and then you keep on going, um, and there's no reason to stop. When people talk about our reptile brain, you know, mm-hmm. the amygdala, kind of like our lower, closest to our um, spinal cord, they kind of literally mean that it is the part of our brain that reptiles still have, and that we have added on to. Yeah, yeah, that's true. For I instance. mean, there is there is evidence, uh, as you say, there's there's. Um, physiological evidence that we uh, have commonalities yeah. with other creatures. Now, of course, you, that doesn't necessarily mean common descent. It could be that the, the designer chose to use the same template hmm. 
to do to give yeah. us a reptile brain as well as the, right. the reptiles. So before we get into the evidence, I'd like you to summarize, if you can, the consensus view as it stands for what exactly is our common ancestry. Like, describe it. In terms of periods? Like, to start with, would you say that the scientific consensus is that, in fact, human beings have common ancestors with primates, and then what, and then what, and then what? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, um, no, I, sh- I, sh- I should, you know, tell the listeners that I'm, this is not my subject, um, but, uh, yeah, the there is no controversy within the wider scientific uh, world about the broad brushstrokes. Okay, so what are those brushstrokes? Uh, that... Basically, modern humans can be dated to 100 to 200,000 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that at the time, at that time, you had three branches of of people that look a bit. I said people of uh, animals that which look yeah. a bit like us. Yeah. They're the Neanderthals and the Denisovans, uh, and you go um, further back, and about three million years ago, there is a branching uh, to uh, modern chimpanzees. And yeah, the dates I don't have in front of me, but there is apparently I'm not interested in the details enough (laughs) to keep this on the top of mind. And I I think that's that's right, that the the emergence of modern humans is quite recent in the big scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, And that there are there is commonality with a number of existing animals, including bananas. Well, not that they're animals, but uh, yeah. Okay, so if that is the consensus view, what is the evidence for that view? There, there are two main threads of uh, evidence um, for which there is uh, sort of accumulating uh, and cumulative data. One is what's called the molecular clock, uh, which is a good example of a prediction made in science which has been, which has been borne out and supports the evolution. Uh, and that's the idea that if creatures didn't appear all at the same time, but they appeared in time and, and, and branched from each other, yeah. then we should expect to see uh, the accumulation of mutations reflected in that branching history. And so if you were to track where the mutations are, you should be able to reconstruct the branching just based on the, uh, the genome. Which just is the, looking at the genome. Just, and, and you can do that. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that like... Maybe Darwin would have predicted. Maybe, did, did Darwin know about genes? No, probably not. So, no. but someone later than Darwin would say, "Oh, we're finding out about genes, but we can't really look at them very much yet. But mm-hmm. I bet we'll find this yeah, when yeah. we can. And now we can, and we do find it. Right. So, so okay. the chances of that happening at random are, are really you know zero. Zero. So, how does this work? Just you know in as layman terms as possible, how is it that you can trace history on a gene or a genome? Well, you'd have to, it's only very recently that we can do this with any kind of precision because you can, you know, uh, read out the genome of a species. Okay. Uh, so you end up with a big long list of uh, A, C's, T's, and yeah, G's. Yeah, like uh, a, The nucleotides yeah. that make up the genome. And you can find the genes, which are the coding portions within, within that uh, genome. And you can uh, find parallel genes in other species uh, that have changed and been, been mutated very slightly. Okay. And then, so basically, a genome keeps a record of all of its mutations. Yes. Okay. It, it, it's like um, if you paint over a wall in your home and if you took a saw, then and you, you could see all the layers of paint that people had done. 
That's right. Over that's time. Right. Yes. Okay. So that's very fortunate for us that that happens and that genetic mutations don't just completely rewrite, but they don't. Well, I'm sure many do, but uh, but there is there is sufficient um, genomes are very long. There's a lot of data there, yeah, and a lot of lot of uh, nucleotides, and yeah, statistically you can reconstruct the uh, okay. the branchings from a analysis of the genomes of different species. But now, uh, do you get actual like? You don't get year numbers. It's just no. like this happened before this. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. all you can really say. That's right. You don't know when it happened exactly, but you can corroborate with other organisms that have the same mutations in their genomes. Right. So I, su- I suppose it's possible you could get young earth common ancestry. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, you, you should get, yeah, but that's because that's not what we find in Genesis. No. We don't. It, uh, so this is actually really similar to how the fossil record is done, right? Yeah, you you, yeah. you dig up fossils all around the world and different spaces, and you go look in all of these substratum, whatever you have from less complexity to more complexity, and then you can say. Oh, dating, you know, we saw this in France, we saw this in Alaska, mm-hmm. we saw this here. Looks like around this time all of these guys were on the earth and then you date it and you do yes. the uh radiometric dating and whatever. Yes, or it could even just be strata, yeah. I mean, yeah. there there is just But the point it is just it's a very way. similar logical process of we can we now have data from genes that is similar to the fossil record, but we can actually get a lot more data a lot more quickly just through looking at a gene. My belief is that that is a really good summary. That Yeah, you can think of these as genetic fossils. Uh, let, uh, uh, yeah, I, ho- I hope you're that. right, because that's a really easy <laughs> way of saying it than the long, long-winded way I hey, we're, we're No, we're, tra- we're just trading... You can take uh, genes or or genetic fossils or whatever, new mutations or genetic fossils, and I'll take the conversation is never over. There it is. And we'll just handshake. We're just even Stevens on that. I like it. And the the other big thread is is just uh, genetic similarity. There are, as I said, there are genes that we share with bananas and yeast and and many other things. And we do share many genes with uh, chimpanzees. We share more genes with chimpanzees than we do with uh, bananas and yeast. And that alone uh, doesn't really tell you anything about common ancestry because it just be the good ideas are repeated uh, right. uh, by the designer. Yeah. But what makes that argument much more powerful is that it's not just the good ideas which are shared across different uh, species. Go. There are very wacky ideas you know that we do um you know the word design shows up throughout descriptions of of uh, evolutionary history because english language is just just really hard to avoid it and it, and and these things do function in a way which design things do function but i don't want people to think that it's not quite alien you know if we were to set about making a genome as human designers now it would be very different from what we find uh, in the in hmm. molecular biology, and we find so we find inefficiencies, we find sloppiness, uh, and we find errors. We find non-functioning genes. This is mutations that caused certain genes to malfunction and no longer provide any sort of benefit, or, or provide or, or um, allow for susceptibility to certain diseases, for example. Huh. And right. so if you track those, like we share those same susceptibility to diseases with uh, chimpanzees, for example. So you'd, if you believed that human beings were miraculously 
um, put onto the earth after everything else had evolved, for mm -hmm, instance, mm -hmm. then you are committed also to believe that God created humans with all of the weird genes that didn't help chimpanzees survive, but that nonetheless they were able to survive despite that. Yeah. And then put them in us as well. Well, it becomes uh, just another variation of the, the devil buried the fossils argument. Um, that, that <laughs> The devil buried the fossils. Well, yeah, this is quite serious. Now, people wondered when, when – because uh, the, the discovery of, uh, of fossils buried deep where we uh, began to get a sense of how long ago that might be, and it was longer than 10,000 years. Yeah. Then uh, you know, this, not, not, there are people who think this is a fair argument that um, – that the the presence of fossils buried is so incompatible with the biblical view. There's certainly no mention of fossils in in Genesis. Then the the we've got to find some way of getting them there, and the deceiver uh, may be the chap who uh, went about it. But that okay. that is the that is uh, in my mind that's the cut. I the science is not in on molecular biology. There's a lot we don't know. Okay. Uh, uh, there's a lot we don't. We haven't spoken about the beginning of life, the origins of life. That's, yeah. that's still ten years out. There's a lot of hopeful ideas, but we don't know how life began. Hmm. And that's a place where if you had to bet today, then there's a wad of cash for a designer. You know, yeah. that's not where I put you're my saying, money. You're saying between uh, inert matter like chemistry you know, rocks yeah. and carbon or whatever chemistry to like to, to biology, organic yeah. yeah yeah organic life yeah but the the way uh, uh so that's the error bars on the, that judgment are, are, are huge yeah. um not to quote a president of any kind but uh the the current <laughs> the current situation with common ancestry uh the evidence is strong in one direction but if you want to ignore that evidence, what you have to say is that it, there's a grand deception going on. Yeah, It's not as if you can explain away what we see. You can't just ignore what we see. You have to say that, for example, the deficiencies and inefficiencies we find in chimpanzees and humans was put there. And let's say if you do reject evolution, then you have to think, you have to say that the way God designed the genome was in a very peculiar manner, in mm -hmm. a way that is not emblematic of anything like a human intelligence. Uh, yeah, you might have to be forced to abandon what you mean by the word intelligent. Yeah, in and, a sense. and at this point, it becomes easier to just say that that God is responsible uh, for the broad scheme of things, and and that bringing forth creatures is something that that the, you know, the created order does of its own accord. Hmm. Um, and of course, these words are analogies, right? When yeah, we talk yeah, about, sure. you know, God wanted or, right. you know, it, we're, we're using human language to apply it to God. And it's always going to, even if it's accurate, it's going to be short of total description. Sure. Okay. So let's say I'm a Christian and I go, all right, I feel like I need to accept common ancestry. What then are my options, sort of theologically at that point? It's a fair question. I'm tempted to give you a trite answer. Okay. <laughs> which is that you go sleep well. Uh, <laughs> and actually, better than that, uh, the conversation you need to go have is uh, a continue, is the one that tied so many theologically important concepts to 
human uniqueness and and therefore disallowed common ancestry. Uh, mm. That I I think is sadly it's it's not a, a simple conversation. So all of the things which people do time. Would you say that conversation is not over? <laughs> I, well, <laughs> for for many people it's not over because it's yeah. something they haven't entertained. Yeah. Um, in my mind, it's uh, well, I, I certainly don't lose lose any sleep over it. Sorry, I mean the conversation of um, what is human uniqueness if it's not genetic uniqueness. That's a conversation that's very much still going on. Well, it is and it isn't. Okay. Uh, is it not just obvious that we are, you know, different to a very high degree? Hmm. And I would say it is. I would say from, there are plenty of scientific disciplines, not molecular biology perhaps, but there are plenty of scientific dis- disciplines who would say the, you know, the best understanding of the day is that humans are different. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's, it's not a bizarre thing to do. So to, to, to work with these you know, polar, the, the polarized sound bites is just, unless you have an agenda, they're not helpful to say that we, are, we have no commonality with the animal kingdom and the creation as a whole. Yeah. Well, that's not even biblical, right? You mean yeah. these, the polarized sound bites? Yeah. I didn't know if you said depolarized or polarized. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. So the conversation you would want to have is to... Uh, double check that the all the societal ills that people think will come about if we lose if we don't if we accept common ancestry is that is that really the case mm. and if it is the case this is an interesting side point uh, a lot of the people who are have uh, strong emotions connected to these issues say the science must be wrong because of the implications of that science. Yeah. And careful what you're saying there, right? Um, you can't do careful thinking that way. You certainly can't do science that way. You can't say, I refuse to even research this or, or believe the data because I don't like the implications. Let's say evolution supported racism, which it doesn't. Well, guess what? That doesn't mean we now get to be racists. (laughs) Right. It just means we we need another reason to not be racist that's not evolution. And they are not, you know, difficult to come by. Yeah. Um, So I think uh, what you need to do is is run through the... the theological anthropology is the technical term. Now, what what mm. is the conception of a person that the Bible teaches, yeah. and that you know that that we are committed to today as twenty first century Christians, and how many of those are knocked out by uh, uh, common ancestry? And my assessment is that none of them are. Hmm. Yeah, it's like I was just thinking. You know, something that makes human beings differently is like our ability to appreciate art. Mm-hmm. or our mm-hmm. ability to make um, complex moral choices. And chimpanzees might derive some sort of pleasure from something that we might call art, mm-hmm. but nothing like, you know, the David or the Sistine Chapel or a great film. Uh, they don't make decisions about how to get a social safety net for the most marginalized members of their society and balance that against property rights of good tax-paying citizens. I mean, there's there's just such a jump mm-hmm. in, of what human beings are capable of. And it's interesting, uh, we may not need to say that what makes us special and valuable is in our hardware, you know, or is in like the organic stuff that our bodies are made of. And that stuff happened to develop in this kind of a way. But what makes us valuable is just not 
the stuff. Well, we, we, we can actually get theological for a second. I mean, Let's the, do it. The, we, the, 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 what is it to be made in the image of God? What is the Imago Dei? Um, and, and what is the Imago Dei in the light of contemporary molecular biology? A big, big old topic. But once again, it's worth remembering that the question of what the Imago Dei is was a broad conversation before any of this came along. You know, yeah. uh, and there are various ways that people would like to say the Imago Dei can be described. It's either referred to as our substance, our, our, our faculties, our ability to be rational, to appreciate art, that kind of thing. Uh, or it could be through a relational, like adoption. And uh, that seems yeah. very compatible with a you know, common ancestry. Yeah, adoption, that's interesting. And a lot of people in throughout history uh, would like to emphasize the more functional side of things. It's what we do. It's our, our role as what's the term, vice regents or something like that. The, yeah, the, that, uh, co-creators. Yeah, to use a contemporary term. Yeah. yeah. So, and and none of these are particularly imperiled by you know, common ancestry. Hmm. Uh, something which w- will, I remember now actually, I remember being shocked by this, is if you start to question the soul, people will say, probably. They would be happy with all the conversation. You could conceivably be happy with everything we've said thus far and then say, but then humans need a soul. Without yeah. a soul, you don't have Christian theology. Yep. And uh, and so that's why you need a event uh, with a physical Adam and a physical Eve in history where yeah. the soul and then perhaps original sin comes from that. Yeah. So that's that's a, another conversation that, that you need to get into. Yeah. Um, this is I the stuff know. I think about like throughout the day all the time and I don't have any answers on it, but I'm like constantly mulling over all of this stuff uh-huh. specifically regarding evolution and scientific evidence as well. Uh-huh. But there's another podcast I'm, we're starting to talk about the- <laughs> theological dimensions and, and that's not this one. Um, but that's really helpful. Is there anything we're missing here? Is there any way we want to tie this back into politics or have we done our work? <sighs> I I would say, speaking as somebody who has spent has been committed to a number of positions across the spectrum, and I, I mean I should say what a what a, <laughs> a privilege I have. What a privilege it is is to not be in a position of authority, right? I'm mm. I'm I, I've been able to nuance my position and shift over time, and what a terrible thing it must be to be in a position of authority where somebody asks your opinion and you can't change it because they, you would now be a flip-flopping person. But uh, guess what? We learn more and things change. Yeah. And so I've had the luxury of being able to shift from a, a young earth and a creationist position uh, without t- too much fallout. Yeah. But um, by virtue of making that transition, I've learned that there are very few villains in this story. Hmm. Um, the people who are even polarizing, the people who are are saying the conversation is over and that uh, evolution is from the devil and... uh, and, uh, Fossils might be quite literally from the devil. Yeah, well, they're doing so because they believe that in destroying evolution, they destroy divorce and yeah. euthanasia and pornography yeah. and and a number of things and guess what i if i if i believe that was the case then i would jump on that yeah, bandwagon too yeah it's something that i talk about a lot is uh if you talk to somebody with whom you really disagree 
rather than firing off an argument against their argument, a better first step is to ask them what the problem is that mm, needs fixing. Right. And then ask them, why do you think that this solves that problem? Right. Yeah. And, and, and before you do that, chances are you could agree that that problem is a severe one. Yeah, that, that usually you will agree on a problem, or at least you could rephrase that problem in a way that, that you think is a problem, and you're all, now you've got common ground. Right. Yeah. So there are, there are very few villains. There are, there, are, there are very good motivations. There are plenty of people who are uninformed, who are unwilling and uh, unknowingly passing on disinformation. Yeah. And I don't want to give the impression I'm talking about just the religious side. This happens on the scientific side, too. Mm. And yet Richard Dawkins is not a villain <laughs> also. Mm. Uh, he also may be misinformed. But his, if I can imagine what's going on inside his head, you know, his blood pressure is raised because he thinks that false information is going out into the world about biological history specifically, and that children are being raised with falsehoods. Yeah. And if I thought that was the case, I also would be worked up about it, and I might be tempted to polarize because I thought that would be hmm. a net gain to do that. There are very few villains. That's another good catchphrase for this show. <laughs> Man, you were on fire today, Adrian. Well, I guess I have, you know, it's curious, you know, when, when you, you approached me about talking about this topic, I was like, I've not really had any anguish about this in such a long time. And so I've had to go back and sort of remember my journey. That's but good. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, it is true. I, uh, I don't think there are too many villains. And so there's room for, for empathy for yeah. other sides, for, for both sides. Well, that's about the best way to end an episode of Depolarize that there is. Um, where can people find you? They can go to counterbalance.org, which is your site, which has a mind-boggling amount of information. Right. <laughs> it, explain to people why they won't be uh, just deterred by the vast amounts of information when they go. Um, well, maybe they will be. <laughs> but the, um, the homepage uh, is split into um, different sections. Uh, it's divided into themes, um, subjects, and questions. Okay. Uh, and so I think if you, you know, uh, whatever, uh, as you come to the website, you'll have either a topic you want to learn about or a question you have. And yeah. hopefully you'll find that. And there you'll see just a few recommended first articles. And the hope is that uh, you'll find something sort of brief that will be satisfying, but then there'll be links upon links upon links. Yeah, upon if you links. want to go further. Yeah, and and something I'm quite proud of, I should say, is that uh, Counterbalance is yes, it's my site because I registered it, but uh, the voices you hear there are are almost entirely not mine, and I have a section called Perspectives on Evolution, which has first-hand uh, lectures from. Uh, creation scientists, young earth creation scientists, and the intelligent design movement, um, mm. and uh, theistic evolutionists, yeah. and also atheists. Uh, mm. So my hope is that people will find their, you know, their buddy there and go double check what they think they already know, Yeah, and they might even watch the next video too. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Uh, can you name a couple books that if someone's like, you know, I... I want to think more about this. Not necessarily, you know, maybe let's let's get a book for like evolution in general and a book that's maybe more specific to the human question or maybe the theological dimensions of that. Can you name a few? We're going to put them up on the show notes. 
Right. Yeah. There, there's there's too many really. Um, what I will pitch because we haven't really gotten to it, and it is actually part of the story. Yeah. Is an edited volume. It's a little technical, but. Um, I would encourage people to read technical literature uh, without any sort of uh, self-condemnation. Just like, you know, thumb through it, find a summary, find an abstract, and, yeah. and, and see what yeah. you can get. And there's an edited volume called Whatever Happened to the Soul? Question uh, mark. And that is a, a, a relevant part of this conversation about human uniqueness and theological anthropology, which we haven't covered. That's an edited volume produced a little while ago. And I found that in just absolutely yeah. fascinating. How the, about just like an overall introduction to theistic evolution? I mean, I'm thinking about like Kenneth Miller, Finding Darwin's God, yeah, or yeah. Francis Collins, Language of God. You, Do you, you have can't a preference? Go, it, it, it's, I hesitated to name it, but it's still such an excellent book. Uh, okay. Actually, both of those two, but I was both thinking of The Language of God by okay. Francis Collins. We'll if people don't know, surely people have heard his name before. So he's a an example of somebody who does not see any incompatibility between evolutionary uh, biology and and theology, and he should know because he headed up the Human Genome Project. So he yeah. gets he gets the that is a voice of authority. We probably should listen to. Yeah, yeah, and, great. Uh, yeah, so that that is, and Kenneth Miller is, is a good one too. Yeah, um, and where can people find you besides the site? Are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? Uh, I am on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we could put that link up Just there. I guess. Adrian Wired. Yeah, I'll put a link to your Facebook page. Well, Adrian, thank you so much, and uh, I plan to have you on to reconstruct the theology podcast at some point to talk through more of the theological implications of this stuff. But, man, I know a conversation's been good when, like, I am my mind is already reeling and I have to tell it to pause because I have to finish the interview before I can start thinking through the implications of all of this. So I loved it, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Koch, K-O-C-H. You can join the discussion at the Facebook group, Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. And you can visit depolarizedpodcast.com for show notes and other materials. We'll see you next week.